we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are author and authority on intelligence issues in the Middle East and everything else, foreign affairs, the Washington Post, David Ignatius, and an expert on Georgia politics, journalist Stephen Fowler. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Lomi, Blinkist, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, I must tell you, I fear the tide is shifting a little to the the Republicans. And I thought maybe the New York Times poll that showed a Republican advantage uh, that was clearly up was a little bit of an outlier. But I see things like Gretchen Whit- Whitmer, who was up double digits now, ahead by only four or five in Michigan. Even the New York gubernatorial race is tightening. There are mixed results, but more of them are moving slightly to the GOP advantage than the Democrats. I agree. And, you know, the North Carolina poll... It was disturbing. The Times was disturbing. I, I thought, as did a lot of people, thought it was an outlier. I, I, I'll be nervous and talking to people and see if this is real. But it, it's it's troubling for right now. It's 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 small, but it's but it's clear. I think small and clear is what we don't need. Which you don't need because, as you've said, and as Charlie Cook and others have said, things don't break 50-50 at the end. They tend to break no. one way. And as of today, uh, 19 days out, they're breaking more for them. I think one of the reasons is, I don't totally understand this, but they appear to have a huge money advantage. I mean, McConnell is pouring money into Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, well outspending Democrats. I... I went into this thinking spending would be an even field. It wouldn't make that big a difference. I think maybe it is. Well, you know, I don't know if New York State is tightening, but there's no Senate candidate. And That's Michigan true. is tightening. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would reserve, I, I reserve the right, you know, to be more definitive later, but it, it's hard to say that some of this stuff coming over to transom is not troubling. I think it is. Yeah. Okay, we'll be back next week on this chit-chat with hopefully a more upbeat note.
we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It goes down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. There is no better foreign affairs reporter than Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. In his spare time, he's written 11 novels. He and I were colleagues at the Wall Street Journal nearly 40 years ago. He's come a bit further uh, than me. David, you wrote an intriguing column a week ago that the widespread protest in Iran over the morality police killing a young woman for not wearing the hijab were far more serious than previous protests. They've continued. What's your take today? So I think, Al, uh, that this is uh, the closest we've seen to a real nationwide uprising in Iran, certainly since the 2009 protests that we call the Green Revolution. The reason that I think, and I'm here quoting Iranian analysts I trust, think that this is so uh, different, is first, it's widespread uh, among Iranian women who were fearless, who were in the streets every day, uh, who uh, brave police, uh, who brave the threat of arrest uh, and beating. Uh, and the protests are spreading to other parts of Iranian society. You, you see beginnings of labor strikes, uh, movement among people in the bazaar, the, the bazaar merchants who were the people who really brought down the Shah in 1979. You begin to see signs of that. And the, the final thing I'd say, uh, Al, is that the regime itself seems to be um, understanding that it's going to have to make concessions. There have been statements uh, in the last several days from IRGC leaders suggesting that there needs to be some compromise on the role of the so-called morality police uh, who arrested the young uh, Kurdish Iranian woman last month and apparently beat her to death. Uh, so those are all signs, I think, that this is different. Whether it will go all the way and change the Iranian government, nobody can predict, but, but this is big. Well, I'm, I'm, it's really interesting to hear you, you see signs that they're looking for some kind of a, 
um, I guess, a, a solution because they, it looks from afar like they're doubling down. They brutally killed hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters, uh, arrested many more. Uh, they, uh, it's unclear how they're treating uh, Elnaz Rikabi, who was, wasn't wearing a headscarf in an international rock climbing tournament. Something happened with her. Uh, but you, you think that they might be looking for a way out of this. So I don't want to overstate the, the, the degree of, of compromise. Iran's a complicated country. The RHGC has different tendencies. What they want, above all, is to hold on to their power. The IRGC runs parts of the economy, obviously has a total control in the security area. And uh, what I've read in a, in a recent statement by a senior figure of the IRGC Navy, for example, is a question about the extreme theocratic practices, the, the role of, the, of the, the so-called morality police in going around the streets. Uh, the IRGC does not want this crisis to get to the point that its own authority is challenged. And, and, and so I, in no way should you, should you think that uh, this is the hardliners giving up power. It may be uh, modest concessions so as to reinforce their power. And David, what more can the United States and others do to support these women? So I think, uh, Al, the most important thing that we can do is, is to uh, try to keep uh, communications open uh, for Iran to the world. The, the regime counts on, on being able to suppress public discussion, sharing of information. It was telling that the, one of the first things they did as these protests began to, to spread was to turn off the internet. That has not been entirely successful. Uh, as as you uh, and your listeners know, Elon Musk has offered to provide Starlink service, his uh, satellite-based internet uh, broadband connection for, for the Iranian people. The question is how to get the, the dishes that would receive those signals into Iran, how to set up the infrastructure for, for communications. There's a lot of discussion, I think, uh, within uh, various agencies of the US government uh, about how to do that, about whether it's worth the risk. But there are other ways to get to get uh, broadband signals. You, you could sail a, a ship that has uh, you know, repeaters uh, up to the Iranian coast and, and, and get signals in, uh, you can get signals across the border uh, other ways. But I think that um, trying to keep communications open would be, should be job one for the U.S. So, so David, you can't confuse the government with the country sometimes. And I have this theory that underneath it, they're really crappy government, that Iran is a real country. I mean, half of the people in Iran have a college education, over half of them are women. I mean, it's an ancient civilization they, they can do things in is there any assume that you you, you know it's a hard tough and you don't know if you replace this government that you're going to get much better but wouldn't it be great if we had a decent government in iran and could allow be allies with them as opposed to saudi arabia which i, I don't think is can do half the crap that iran can do as, as a country so, James, you say Iran is, is a real country, it's a real civilization. I visited there twice uh, in the last uh, uh, dozen years, and each time I've been struck by how sophisticated people are, 
you go to parties in North Tehran and behind the closed doors, you have the most sophisticated conversations about cinema, art. Uh, you also have a, a good bottle of wine and uh, and and shot of uh, of something harder. Uh, the, the idea that that this is you know theocracy where people are all rigidly that says that doesn't happen that way. But but it, if Iran could uh, escape this backward-looking theocracy and become the modern country that Iranians passionately want it to be, uh, it would be, uh, I think, the, the most fundamental uh, game-changer for that part of the world, and, and arguably for the world as a, as a whole. If, if Iran, the most strident anti-American country in the world, sh should change course, uh, that, that that's as as important as the 1979 revolution was in the opposite direction. This is a, this is a country, James, that lives on the slogan, death to America. And it's not working for them anymore, at least not in the way it, that it used to. And you have a young woman, you know, placing in, in a, to the top of an international rock climbing competition with no hijab. And she comes home and she's mobbed by Iranians who are so proud of her, who want to celebrate her? The police are out trying to stop people, and they can't stop them because they're 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 proud of this young woman. That's that's something new, and I think it's going to be hard for the authorities. To yeah, I I wish you know if they had a if any kind of different government that would do like what Israel does and bring influential Americans to Iran because people that like you that I've talked to and they said you can't believe the architecture, you can't believe the art, you can't believe we're just a a, a great potential that this country has and of course it has not much potential with the, these theocrat criminals that run it now but man we can hope uh, you know and your reporting is you know it gives us embers of hope it's, it's a great it's a fabulous country I, I wrote after i went went there it was somewhere between pyongyang and los angeles <laughs> I mean, like, but the los angeles part is is pretty it's like it's wow! It, it, it is as, as modern as any place. Well, I, I hope that, I know that you will. I, I, I know you continue reporting on this, uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the situation in Ukraine. And uh, how surprised are you that we are where we are today compared to what you thought in February? So I was just in in Kiev uh, ten days ago. Uh, I was there the day that they attacked the Kerch Strait Bridge um, and was fortunate to get out of the country uh, 24 hours before the massive uh, bombing wave that we've seen since then. And I was struck face-to-face um, -face by the same things that we all see in the newspapers. First, the Iranian military, excuse me, the Ukrainian military has performed with just extraordinary skill in pushing back this enormous Russian land army. It's, it's military historians, uh, students at West Point for 50 years will be studying how the Ukrainians did this, how they used deception, operational planning to, to make these incredible uh, advances. The second thing that you uh, see in every conversation with Ukrainians is is their defiance, their courage, obviously. I mean, these people are, are just, uh, they're so brave. You know, I saw a huge uh, wall, uh, uh, 
painting in the middle of Kiev that, that said, be brave like Ukraine. And that's what everybody wants to be, be brave like Ukraine. So they're defiant, they don't want to compromise, they want us to stand with them and give them weapons. And, you know, they they think they're going to win every day. And I get messages, uh, Al and, and Jim, on my uh, uh, phone every day uh, from the friends I made there, you know, just showing me, here's what it's like in the shelters. Here's my little uh, uh, son, you know, with his teddy bear. Uh, here's what it looked like as a plane exploded outside my window and fell to the ground. You know, it's just they're living a nightmare, but but they're just so, Hey, guys, excuse me, David, I, I can't thank you enough. I hope we'll be back. Al, if you can just bring the interview home, I've I, I got to run to this next meeting. It's just, it's oh, oh I got a bunch more, James. I hope I'll make you yeah, proud I, with these questions. Thank you so much, and I mean the stuff on Iran. If we could, we could just dream one day that that could be an ally, which would be worth the, all the rest of them put together. I think. Thank you, Amen. brother. Thank you, Dave. Dave, Dave, and I will say on Ukraine, we had dinner in late January, and you you had just gotten back from Ukraine, and you were prescient on exactly what they, you know, how tough they would be, how prepared they were, and how much rougher it was going to be for the Russians. That sure has 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 happened. Um, and, it's, and and they're they're winning in the battlefield. Yet the Russians are bombarding civilians and energy infrastructure. With winter approaching right now, uh, ha, ha, just look ahead. So uh, it's going to be a terrible winter for the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russian attacks are not having much effect on the battlefield, and the battlefield situation remains as negative for Russia as it was a month ago. In fact, probably even more so in the south, in the Kherson area that is key strategically as a gateway to the Black Sea, the Russians are in, in worse trouble uh, this week than, than ever. So I think we have to distinguish between attempts to break the will of civilians and the actual military course of, of the battle. My fear, I'll just be frank about this, when President Putin uh, in announcing his mobilization of Russian forces, referenced the American use of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and said, I'm not bluffing. What I think he was saying was, America used its nuclear weapons to shorten a war that it was determined to win. That's why we used those weapons. We didn't want to, we didn't want to invade with a huge army, the home islands. So we use nuclear weapons. They had a military purpose. Putin knows his army is exhausted. He does not want to have to invade Ukraine all the way to Kiev again. And I think it's possible that he will, he will adopt this nuclear strategy just as the United States did. We need to take it seriously and find a way to deter him. Just to, and, and that's, I think, the Pentagon is working 24-7 to think about this problem. Well, David, as horrific as that would be, he may not have any other off-ramp. So that's, that's the problem. What is the, this is a man who cannot lose, who's losing. So what's the proper United States response for that? President Biden, I think correctly, continues to say he wants to see a negotiated settlement for this. This is not a war that's going to end in unconditional surrender by either side. So how do you negotiate a settlement? But... Um, so far, I see no evidence whatsoever 
of the back channel to Putin that might begin a process of discussion uh, to keep this, um, you know, we're about to jump the next uh, ladder of, of escalation here. Uh, not, not necessarily nuclear, but possibly. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's scary time. And uh, we're just, I think we're lucky to have people with good judgment in the White House. Well, I, Dave, let me pick up that. I, I, um, I, I find out what I think about foreign policy from reading you. Uh, so I'm, uh, it seems to me that the Biden administration was justifiably criticized for the way we got out of uh, Afghanistan. It was really, it was really messy. You know, I, I would argue we should have gotten out, but they did it in exactly the wrong way. My impression is they have handled this situation almost perfectly, and yet they seem to get very little credit for it. They get credit in Europe. I, I just have been, in, in addition to being in Kiev and Warsaw and, uh, uh, and other places in Europe, in Italy, and and they get uh, uh, high marks for uh, organizing the NATO alliance, for um, giving people sharing intelligence with our allies that made clear the seriousness of these problems. Um, I've never seen um, NATO alliance management handled better than, than by this group. You can argue that they were late in providing the weapons that Ukraine needs to hold its ground. I think they made a um, mistaken estimate, as, as the world did, that the Ukrainians couldn't hold out against this enormous Russian army. They, they thought the war would be over in a couple of weeks. So they didn't initially bring in the HIMARS because I thought, why let the Russians capture HIMARS? Because they're going to they're going to roll. So uh, that was a mistake, but they've reversed it now. And uh, I just read, as you probably did, in the papers this morning, that the company in the U.S. that makes the HIMARS is announcing that it's you know sort of World War II scale production push to 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 build as many of these and get them in a state to export to Ukraine as possible. So I think that's good, that, that mobilization is essential. The core issue, Al, is the one that we were talking about earlier. Uh, if President Biden means what he says, that a negotiated settlement is essential, that you cannot take this all the way to the brink, they've got to find, as President Kennedy did in the Cuban Missile Crisis, a way to, um, probably in secret, negotiate the shape of a deal that will bring this war to an acceptable end. How they do that, I, I, as much as I follow foreign policy, I have to be honest, I don't know. And they have to do it in a way that Zelensky will accept it, which, which makes it really difficult. You cannot shove a settlement down the throats of people who have suffered the right. way that the Ukrainians have. They're just, they're not gonna, they're not gonna take it. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's gonna be, uh, you know, watch this space, the, we'll, we'll see, um, either one of the most, uh, you know, the most effective diplomatic rounds since since JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis, or we'll, we'll, we may see a disaster. Well, we will watch David Ignatius' space always because you are the premier uh, foreign affairs reporter, and uh, we appreciate you being on this show, and we'll stay in touch, David. Thank you, Al. It's great to be with you and Jim. Give your wife a hug. Okay. Same duty. Bye.
Hey, James, a foremost journalistic expert on politics in Georgia, where there are a lot of high-stakes politics this year, is Steve Fowler of Georgia Public Television. Steve, we are so pleased to have you on this program. And let me start off by saying I watched the Warnock-Walker debate uh, almost a week ago. And while Warnock didn't hit it out of the park, I thought Herschel Walker was embarrassingly bad, confused by some questions on capping insulin costs, said you got to eat, the phony stunt of of pulling out a sheriff's badge. Yet much of the post-debate analysis was expectations were so low, Walker helped himself. Well, uh, tell me what... Well, I I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think... Herschel Walker went into this debate saying, I'm not smart and I'm going to lose this debate. And so when you set the expectations uh, so low like that, it's very easy, particularly for a national media environment that thrives off of uh, this kind of minute by minute horse race update. Yeah, the the ball was knocked out of the park. I mean, from my perspective and for a lot of perspective of people in Georgia, there wasn't really anything new learned from either candidate in this race other than the Herschel Walker sheriff badge debacle. I mean, the format of the debate wasn't really conducive to debating. Herschel Walker got as many questions about his controversial uh, alleged abortion that he paid for as whether or not he would change the name of the Atlanta Braves. And so really, you know, Herschel Walker needed this debate more than Raphael Warnock. And I think the way both candidates approached that, they served their goals. Yeah. My impression from afar and that Washington's not the best place to understand the heartland. But 19 days out is that Republican Brian Kemp is likely to win re-election and probably topping 50% on November 8th. I want to point out this 19, 19 days out. Warnock will likely run ahead of Walker, but probably less than 50% within a runoff a month later. How, how, how reasonable does that seem as of today? Well, see, I have a bit of a pariah take here because I think it's okay. more likely that Raphael Warnock could win outright and Brian Kemp could be dragged down into a runoff based on some wow. of the reputable polling that's come through here and based on kind of anecdotal on-the-ground reporting as well as the first couple of days of early voting data here. Uh, polling that is reliable shows Warnock and Brian Kemp getting similar shares of their own party and the opposite party, but independents have been breaking for Raphael Warnock even more. And if you have an electorate that shows out that is a little bit more even than some of these polls suggest, a lot of polls have a much more Republican electorate showing up, you could see a scenario where Kemp could nose down barely under 50 and Warnock could be barely over 50. But uh, really it's hard to tell too because what Democrats are doing is they're pouring a lot of time and resources into newly registered voters, low propensity voters that don't show up in these likely voter polls. And their argument is you don't know who we're bringing out to the polls so you're counting us out. But I do think conventional wisdom at this point would point to both Kemp and Warnock being victorious without a runoff, but Georgia does have that runoff law, and we've got a lot of libertarians trying to uh, give people a third choice, and that choice is runoff. Well, wow. I mean, that's really some insight. Uh, You mentioned, you know, who's voting. Early voting began in the Peach State uh, on Monday. Uh, A massive turnout, far bigger than the last midterm, almost as big as the presidential year. Do do, do you get any sense as to who is voting in in, in this early vote? 
Well, it is still too early. We know more people are voting than the last midterm, and we know in the last midterm, Stacey Abrams came, you know, about 55,000 votes short. Georgia has typically enjoyed a lot of people using the three weeks of early voting, and the data I've looked at so far suggests that these are a lot of the people that typically show up in person and early vote. I mean, anecdotally, uh, in some of Atlanta's counties, you've seen a lot of older black voters show up and vote these first couple days. Looking at the math, more than half of the people that have cast a ballot so far are over the age of 65, and so that doesn't necessarily tell you as much about these breakdowns of voters, but... Uh, one narrative that will go through this is that Georgia had the big voting law that changed a lot of things, and Democrats are saying, look at us, we're overcoming this voting law. And Republicans are saying, look, the voting law made it easy to vote. Uh, but I guess the bottom line takeaway is with the ungodly amounts of money that the Senate and the governor races have poured into Georgia, a lot of people are paying attention. And really the stakes that both of these campaigns and these parties have put in Georgia, they've made this a referendum on the future direction of America more so than what's best for Georgia. James. So, so <clears throat> Stephen, I, I talked to Chris Hutman this morning, and he's taking out for, for voters that didn't vote in 2018, that are early voters in, in 2022. And uh, they look pretty favorable for Democrats. It, it was like, uh, I want to say 58, 59 white, uh, it was 32, 33 black, which was, you know, pretty good, pretty good ratio. I mean, not... Early Republicans don't early vote much, but I don't know how much to extrapolate from that. But it does seem like with this, this going to be another heavy turnout election in Georgia. You agree with that analysis? Absolutely. We had 4 million people show up in 2018. That was a record for a midterm. 5 million people showed up in 2020. That was a record for a presidential year. And this looks to be somewhere between the two of those. And another stat people should keep in mind is a million new people have been added to the rolls here since the last governor's race in 2018. Many of those people tend to be younger, more diverse, democratic-leaning areas. Areas. And so, you know, it's probably going to be another close election. I mean, these polls saying that, oh, you know, Brian Kemp's up five or six points, stuff like that, that's not real. But there's a lot of people voting, and it's a little too early to see where. But, I mean, like you mentioned, there are a lot of people voting that Democrats should feel pretty good about in these first couple of days, in these first couple thousand, hundred thousand votes. So I think the people that listen to this podcast uh, look at Georgia and Herschel Walker and it's kind of a WTF moment. Like, come on, this guy is paid, you know, claims he's pro-life, he's paid for one abortion, tried to have another abortion, has four kids by four different mothers, most of whom he pays no attention to, uh, has said, you know, tubervillian stupid things on the campaign trail, and at least from a distance, it seems to not have much effect. Uh, I mean, it's, it's Georgia politics and American politics got to the point where it didn't even make a shit who you are, just the letter you have after your well, name. I, in this election, I think that's a fair assessment to say. I mean, today, Kevin Kramer's down here, Matt Schlapp's down here, uh, Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, all of these people are coming down. They're not saying... Vote for Herschel Walker. He's an amazing stand-up guy and a champion for all of these other things. They're saying, vote for Herschel Walker because he could be the 51st Republican senator in the United States Senate. And so 
really, it's a zero-sum game, and Georgia's maybe the zero-summiest of all of the states right now because at the end of the day, Republican Herschel Walker's most important asset is that he's a Republican. And that's also motivated Democrats, too, because for many people, the prospect of Herschel Walker being the majority-making seat is enough that people are like, yeah, you know, Raphael Warnock, I maybe don't feel strong about him, but I definitely feel strong about not Herschel Walker. And, and it, it seems to me no one's talking about better highways or mass transit, and, you know, around Atlanta or, or clean water, or any of those local stuff people tend sometimes talk about in these Senate races. It, it's just most all national all the time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, Georgia Georgia's a shiny object. You know, Georgia's got an electorate that is more representative of the country as a whole. It's got Republican state-level leadership that's championed policies that have brought in more Democratic-leaning voters and Democratic-leaning industries. And it's a major player in the Electoral College where most outcomes you can already write several elections out. And so it is, I like to say it's the... Uh, black hole at the center of the political universe right now. But it, I think for at least the next decade, you're going to have a lot of money, time, and energy fighting over Georgia's votes. And it's not, it's not going to be solidly one party or the other at all levels for a while to come. Well, what a, what a, what a great position for a journalist to be in. <laughs> we, we're lucky to have <laughs> Do you. Do like job security. <laughs> a lot better being there than being in Alabama. <laughs> Uh, Albert, I want to come back to Walker for a minute. Um, you know, I've read and actually been told by a couple of people that it was kind of, I don't know, common knowledge uh, is too strong a word, but a lot of people uh, knew the story uh, about the alleged abortion. And, it was, and there was incredibly strong evidence, a check, a, a note, uh, a, a receipt, everything else. But he basically pulled from the Trump playbook. You just deny it and you deny it and it goes away. And that seems to be working on that issue. Well, it's one of the things where at this point, I think there's a lot of things baked in the cake here. That news that the Daily Beast published about the, I shall say, alleged payment of an abortion isn't necessarily going to be the make or break moment for a lot of people if they're going to vote for Herschel Walker or not vote for Herschel Walker. Basically, for the last 14 months that he's run, there have been negative story after negative story, controversies about his past, overstatements of his resume, lack of a grasp of basic issues and politics and policy. But it just is kind of the yet another thing for people to be... Uh, say, yes, I, this is why I'm not voting for Herschel Walker. I'm going to vote for the Libertarian or I'm not going to vote or I'm voting for Raphael Warnock. And so at this point, I don't think it matters in the traditional sense. This isn't, you know, this isn't Christine O'Donnell, you know, level, I am not a witch or, you know, any sort of other just like complete 180 moment. But what it does is it just reinforces what people already feel. And I think what you're seeing with a strategy of the campaign ignoring it and of the Democrats not really touching it is at this point, it's a race to the finish line of turning out as many of your voters as possible. And the Republican Party has signaled that Herschel Walker could have paid for 100 abortions. And at the end of the day, he's still a Republican, so they're going to vote for him. We've never been sure if Christine O'Donnell was hurt more by the witchcraft or the fact that she led the anti-masturbation uh, effort in Delaware. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, you just get a sense that the magic that she captured on her first run isn't quite there this time. 
Well, I mean, 2018 was definitely a better year for Democrats than they're facing right now. And Stacey Abrams has the disadvantage of Brian Kemp having a pretty strong economy that he can take credit for, which also, you know, hurts Herschel Walker. Nationally, Democrats are getting hammered on inflation and the economy and gas prices and things. But here in Georgia, Brian Kemp's entire persona is Georgia's got a great economy. I did that. I opened us early in the pandemic. I cut gas prices. I paid teachers teachers more, I gave you a tax rebate, and it's a pretty effective message. You know, even though he's passed one of the strictest abortion laws in the country, even though he signed voting restrictions, at the end of the day, the bank accounts of Georgians are looking pretty great. And it's hard to challenge that. I mean, I believe somebody on this podcast said it's the economy, stupid. And so it's it, Did it, they? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it, it's hard for her, but I do think people are overlooking the sheer amount of money she has, the sheer amount of advertising she's putting forth towards people that don't normally show up to vote, and I think people will be surprised at the final margins and the types of people that have shown up because. I think there are certain amounts of people that are going to vote for Stacey Abrams, even if they don't feel like she's running the best campaign. But there are still people out there that are getting excited and energized by her vision that aren't showing up at the same five places that national reporters look and aren't showing up in likely voter polls. And no better organizer in American politics. One final question before going back to James. Uh, really, uh, uh, I, I think a, a really, really outrageous gerrymandering in Georgia, as in other states. There seems to be only one competitive congressional district, and that involves veteran Congressman Sanford Bishop. Uh, what's the outlook there? Well, the question for me isn't if Sanford Bishop wins, but it's what his margins are. You know, Sanford Bishop has yeah. always outrun the top of the ticket. He's got a lot of crossover support from white farmers. He's championed agriculture. He's championed the military. And those are two of the biggest uh, industries in that Southwest Georgia district. But the Republican has a very strong campaign message of Sanford Bishop's been in office for three decades, and this is still one of the poorest districts in the country, and how come he hasn't fixed it? And he's going after white farmers, and he's going after lower-income black voters in a lot of the kind of urban areas in that district. But the problem is, is that national Republicans haven't put any sort of money behind trying to defeat Sanford Bishop. And so there's been air cover from Democratic groups and outside groups hitting the Republican, but nothing really hitting Bishop. So it's an effective message, but not gotten out to scale. And to me, Sanford Bishop, uh, I spent a couple of weeks days in the district a couple weeks ago, Sanford Bishop is working like he is uh, fighting for his life. And he's raised more money and he spent more time talking to black voters in Southwest Georgia that it could end up being a boon for the top of the ticket, having a competent challenger against Bishop instead of just a, another generic person that loses by 20. Sure can hurt, James. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Stephen, I'm gonna let you go in a few minutes, but I had a thought, if Doug Jones and Roy Moore they ran in 2017, and Doug famously, you know, Democrats in Alabama, which is real rarity. If they went to post in 2022, I think Roy Moore would win by eight points. He probably would. Uh, that's just the environment we're in. And, and right. but, uh, you know, Roy Moore actually, honestly, probably might not have even been recruited to run. There probably could have been, uh, maybe they could have gotten Nick Saban to be on the ticket. But, right, but I'm, I'm just saying this. The Better than Tommy Tuberville. is dug in, and the nationalization is dug into the fact that Roy Moore 
could probably, you know, ban from the Gadsden Mall. Well, I mean, just look, I mean, look no further than Georgia's northwest corner and Marjorie Taylor Greene. By, by, by all accounts, Marjorie Taylor Greene should be shunned in the corner of the Republican caucus, but now there's reporting coming out, and she's openly saying, Kevin McCarthy needs to give me power to please the base. And so you could have a Republican-controlled House next year with prominent Republican leader Marjorie Taylor Greene at the helm. And, you know, the, the Democrat running against her has basically uh, set a bunch of money on fire for consultants, isn't working on getting out the vote, isn't working on... Uh, building up capacity in a very, very Republican district. But there's just a lot of perverse incentives for campaigns running now. And really, at the end of the day, it's the letter after your name. But, you know, there's still a possibility that a Roy Moore type situation and Herschel Walker's unique situation might be enough where it doesn't get you to 50% plus one anymore. Maybe so. Uh, I hope so, but uh, if, if you were before, you're typically knowledgeable and typically coherent and cogent guests, and I thank you very much, Albert. Yeah, I do too, Steve. You, you've give, given us some real new insights on that Georgia race, 19 days to go, and boy, that's going to be election night. Uh, there's no place you're going to watch more closely than Georgia. So thank you so much. All right, thank you. Now for our listener questions. We're going to start off with Tim. Tim, I'm going to make an exception because all you wrote was that you're in the Northeast. Now, the Northeast is about eight or ten states, so next time tell us we're in the Northeast. But he wants the DNC to support broad ads to tear apart the Republicans. I want the Democrats to make people ashamed to be a Republican. They continue to take the, quote, high road, end quote, and as such, they're going to lose slim majorities they now have. Why should I support a party when they aren't fighting, James? Tim asks. Oh, well, uh, a little bit, I'm going to take a little bit of an issue here. People see, they look at the Herschel Walker thing, they, they look at Trump, and if you, you know, look at your outrage and overcharging the government of doing whatever, whatever. I mean, there's a massive amount of information about how horrendous the Republicans are, and people aren't necessarily biting. I, I think what the Democrats should do, they should run a 30-second ad, and it says, like, people around the world, Americans are being faced with a steep costs in the rise of living. The Republican plan, and yes, it is a Republican plan. It was a plan for Reagan in the 80s, Gingrich in the 90s, Bush in the 2000s, and now Rick Scott, Ted Budd, and Ron Johnson want to cut Social Security and Medicare. It's actually a, a, a real issue distinction. Joe Biden and the Democrats want to levy a windfall profit tax on big corporations and oil companies and return that to consumers. Which plan do you prefer? Take it right to them. Take it right to them on, on the most fundamental thing. Yeah, you're right. The cost of living is high. That's their plan. This is our plan. You got to close with something. And, you, you know, pivoting and going to something else or talking about this is just not going to work. And I think they ought to take this thing head on. I, I think one of the mistakes in the campaign in general, there's been too little attention paid to Democrats to the Rick Scott plan uh, that does want to sunset Social totally Security agree. and Medicare. And what everybody's scared of because, and by the way, this is something that's inbred in Republican philosophy. Again, Reagan 
tried to do it, accomplished it a little bit. Obviously, Gingrich wanted to do it. The Wall Street Journal editorial page is. I can't tell you the number of times they talk about cutting entitlements every other time you turn around. And I don't know why we don't hang it around their neck. I just have no idea. But if they want to do something, say they want to cut Social Security and Medicare, we want to raise taxes on willful profits to give, you know. I couldn't agree more. Gordon in Norwood, Michigan, says he loves the podcast, he loves real paper, and we're about to try the hold-on products. Yay, Gordon. Gordon's a public defender, and he's seen many families devastated by alcohol and drugs, and, and democratic policy should be the answer. Unfortunately, I also believe there's a sense of desperation, of despair, that triggers addiction. How do we use politics to create communities of support that will help people feel that they belong? Gordon, some local communities have done that. Jim Fallon and Deb Fallows capture that in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, but it takes a lot of work, and you're going to sometimes get some demagoguery from the other side that says you're coddling bad people. But uh, this, is a, this is a huge problem for America, uh, made worse by some of the bandit uh, uh, you know, companies uh, like um, uh, the Sacklers uh, and Purdue Pharma. And, and, and Cardinal, but uh, I just think, you know, local communities, Washington can help, but that really local communities have to band together. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know, you, I, I agree, and just the solution to this has, is more organic and less, I mean, I guess Congress could pass some things that, you know, assist people like this, but they all have tax, the tax code favors them. Uh, this is one we're probably going to have to solve on our own. Yeah. Christopher in Norwood, New Jersey, says the Democrats have a problem winning Senate elections in red states, but have been able to win governor's <coughs> mansions in those same red states. North Carolina, Montana, Kentucky, and Louisiana come to mind. How do Democrats win those gubernatorial uh, races uh, and then can't do well in the Senate contest, James? Well, Republicans, Maryland, Massachusetts, Vermont, might even be Oregon this cycle. Yep. Yeah, statewide races are a little bit different. As I pointed out before, in the last 40 years, I think Kansas has had as many Democratic governors as Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> they're a little harder to nationalize. You know, in Louisiana, we had, you know, we're going to do some once in a 50-year event. We had a particularly skilled and good gubernatorial candidate and particularly skilled and good, good governor against particularly horrific... Uh, Republican opponents. I, I, something tells me we're not going to get the luck of that draw in 2023, but we might. And by the way, just, I, I've been very big on this, and I continue to be big on it. Keep your eye on the Mississippi governor's race. Next year. I'm more bullish on Mississippi than I am Louisiana. And that's next year, gotta, isn't it, James? Yeah. Yeah. In Kentucky, and I think Andy's got a good chance. You know, that's that's a, don't, not going to be a Democratic senator from Kentucky. Not going to be one from Louisiana. Uh, okay. But we could win two out of three. Linda in Holden, Massachusetts, says John Fetterman's lead in Pennsylvania has narrowed considerably. Is there anything he can do to regain ground? Is it a matter of money or a new message? Linda, I am very skeptical of the idea that debates uh, determine elections. I think they hardly ever do. 
The debate in Pennsylvania next uh, Wednesday, October 25th, with Fetterman and Dr. Oz, I think may be an exception to that because John Fetterman, uh, he's been hurt by some of the attacks on crime and some of the other Republican attacks. But I think he's, he's, he's lost a lot of that lead because he had a stroke and people aren't sure if he, you know, how ready he is. He did a not very satisfactory interview with NBC. Some of his campaign appearances have been much better. People are going to be watching that October 25th debate. And if he can hold his own, uh, I think he can still win that. People in Pennsylvania do not like Dr. Oz. No. And it, it, you know, the lead went from six to three to maybe two and a half. Um, if it feels good debate, I, you know, feel fa fairly, fairly confident about this. But, you know, if this thing breaks against us, we're going to lose a lot. We've got to be prepared for that. You know, we've got to do everything we can to stop it from breaking against us. That's why we've got to run, got to take some of these issues head on here and, and be kind of single in our focus this last few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Kate in Seattle, Washington, across the country, says, I love listening to the podcast while enjoying Magic Spoon and really looking at Blinkist for Christmas presents for my family. Boy, our sponsors are really scoring big with, uh, with our I'm listeners, James. Go ahead, Kate. Go there. Right. You go, girl. Kate says on, on, on the question, my Republican retiree dad from Pennsylvania is always on me about how political the January 6th hearings are. I say, sure, they're political, but they are bipartisan. How fantastic are these hearings? Have you ever seen Congress produce anything as compelling? Well, first of all, the reason that they're this way is that the, the Democrats gave them everything they had subpoena power. They could have done anything they wanted. The one thing they said, you could apply for Jim Jordan and... No, 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 James. That was before. Earlier, they gave him the 9-11 commission. They gave him everything. Which, which right, was right. everything. And then they said... Uh, uh, and then they, uh, the, the Republicans voted that down. And, and then right. Pelosi says, all right, we'll have our own. And they, that's when they try to appoint Jim Jordan, which would have been insane. Well, it's just... The, 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 the argument that your friends are making is just frankly... It just, it just no truth to it. They tried to do everything they could, and it was th their choice that they didn't do this. And they, they left it, and, you know, the, them, they put on a really compelling case, and I think they got more to come. But this is not the Democrats ramming something through. This is just real stupidity. It's like Trump and these legal issues. This guy can't stop confessing. He can't stop confessing. In this E. Jean Carroll case, his defense was he, he he couldn't slander because he was president, and the president can't do that. I, I don't know. Some people say the legal argument, they had some chance that could have worked. Well, he just said the same thing again, that he's not president. He just, they, they just, this guy cannot stop confessing. He is a lawyer's nightmare. And that that's what happened with, with, with the you know, the January 6th commission. They gave him everything and they took, they said no. Even his second-rate lawyers don't want him to be within a continent of the January 6th committee. There ain't no way he's going to testify. No way. Mike, right, Alvin, can you, Mike can and, do one more? One more. Mike in Austin, Texas says, can you explain to me the connection that I just can't see? Nobody's laid out. How would a Republican majority in the House affect inflation, gas prices, or that silly old kitchen table everyone likes to bring up? If Craven McCarthy becomes Speaker, will I suddenly be paying $2 a gallon? Boy, Mike, you nailed it. The only Republican answer to inflation, which they say is terrible, and it is, is it's all due to Democratic spending. 
Why then are the Democrats responsible for the 10% inflation rate in Germany? Uh, they have no solutions. Uh, and uh, if anything, I think your friend Craven might make it worse. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I go back to the ad I want to run. Yes, we, you know, everybody, actually, inflation is where, where Britain is over 10% now. I know that's an argument you can't make, but you just make the general argument we like everybody's doing this. Who has the best plan to right. deal with it? Hey, now for the outrage of the week. Donald Trump wanted to be president because he loves attention, but maybe even more, it afforded him new opportunities for scams. This week, the House Oversight Committee revealed that he overcharged Secret Service agents staying at his hotel. In one case, $1,185 a night for staying at the Trump D.C. hotel. The president's son, Eric, said, oh, I'm sorry, agents were staying at discounted rates at the Trump hotel. Yeah, sure, Eric. Just as Trump University offered a real education, or how about the Trump charity that the New York Attorney General shut down and made you take a mandatory training on how to operate a real charity? The Trump scams are family affairs. Well, my, my outrage is this. If, if I, you walked in, I walked in a room, somebody, and there were 100 people in there. And John Durham, the, the Bill Ball appointed special counsel, was one of them and you said, there's a massive asshole in this room, point to that person, you would point right to John Durham. This guy looks like what he is and just pull his picture up and look at it. Now, of course, he was humped and promoted by Trump and by Sean Hannity and all of Fox and he's been handed one devastating loss after another. And you know, it's, it's just another one of these things where I can't remember when there's been a Democratic special counsel. And my favorite headline about John Durham, he's the worst independent counsel since Ken Starr. If you get your name in the same headline as Ken Starr, you're not doing very well. And the John Durham thing was, was a massive failure and a, a massive failure to do anything. Of course, Merrick Garland probably smartly gave him all the rope he could and let him hang himself. And that's exactly what John Durham did. And I have to tell you, it's rather gleeful watching him dangle at the end of a rope. I mean. And I saw Sean Hannity last night. He said, it really doesn't matter whether he won or lost. No. All kinds of information. Yeah, sure. No. Anyway, well, Just you're right. The criminal justice system for a political end, ruined people's lives, them run up a gazillion dollars yeah. in legal fees when they had no case at all. Great. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Omi, Blinkist, and Raycon in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. You know, when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.